Motorcycles and Misfits here at the Recycle Garage in sunny Santa Cruz, California. So we're bringing to you this special episode. You may have heard us talking recently about our little trip to L.A. that Emma and I took. It was pretty cool. We had some great interviews. So we received an invitation from Honda to go down to their headquarters in Southern California. Emma and I packed our bikes and we headed down to L.A. for a weekend of fun in a city that is a virtual motorcyclist playground. There's so many things to find there. We got so many great interviews that we're going to split them up into their own mini episodes. This is the first of that series. Our first stop was to the Honda headquarters in Torrance, California. Upon arriving, we realized we are in a compound the size of a small city. We headed into the main building to meet Colin Miller, who had invited us down. Just the lobby was impressive. There were motorcycles, lawnmowers, engines, all sorts of accessories, everything Honda in there. I could have stayed there all day looking around, but this was just the meeting point. So Colin escorted us out of the building as we headed for the Honda Museum. That's right, they have their own personal museum there. And because the compound is so big, they use Honda Avalanche trucks to get around. So we drove a short distance to the museum and walked into the lobby. This is where we started recording, so you can listen in as we open the doors and discover what lies within. All right. <laughs> Emma. How did we pull this off, Liza? I don't know. You know, But this- we're here... I'm going to use some fairly obtuse language here. We got the golden key to the crapper. Well, can you first, let's introduce who we're here with. We are here with um, Colin. Mm -hmm. And Colin has a very specific role within Honda. Um, You... So, yeah, pretty much media coordinator for the uh, motorcycle division. So all the two-wheel portions of the motorcycle division, I deal with public relations and media. And and uh, Jim and I met Colin up at Laguna Seca. That's right. During the races. Right. And he so kindly offered for us to come down to L.A. and visit the Honda headquarters. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, he's a very personable young man, extremely well-groomed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, I thought... Honda headquarters. I hadn't. I'd never even like thought where. Where are they? And sure, I'm not going to pass up on that. So we came down here, and this place is massive. It's a city in itself, and I mean, I was overwhelmed just by the sheer size of it. But we're at somewhere quite special right now. We're standing in the lobby. Oh God, I can barely contain myself. We're we're about to walk into the museum mm-hmm. here. It, at, at the Honda HQ, and um, oh, I'm so excited! Th- is this well, we're is in lo- we're in the lobby? We haven't even gone in. No. And I have my hand on a v- V8 Honda IndyCar engine. It's just the most <laughs> amazing thing I think I have ever seen. So before we head in, so 
this campus here, it's not just Honda motorcycles, it's cars, it's lawnmowers, rototillers, generators, everything. Is this museum about have everything in it as well? Yes, it does. Yeah, you're going to see, you know, everything from power equipment engines to a lot of cars to Indy cars, uh, motorcycles, and kind of has also like a little bit of a history of Honda as a company. So kind of the whole picture as it, the company itself comes together. And one of the things we take for granted, we all grew up around Hondas, everyone's familiar with Hondas, but to put into perspective the, the, the scope of Honda, we were talking about this earlier, uh, Honda motorcycles worldwide, mm-hmm. they outsell. Yeah, it's the largest motorcycle uh, company on the earth. I mean, so you're looking at, I think it was 18, 19 million motorcycles just last year worldwide. They outsell every other brand. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's pretty huge. Yeah, and uh, also you mentioned that Honda is the largest manufacturer of just combustion engines on the planet. Correct. Yeah, I mean you have you know like you said the you know lawnmowers, power equipment, pressure washers, cars, motorcycles, everything. So um, when you add that all together, you know the largest producer of internal combustion engines on the planet. So that said, are we going to see anything electric on this tour? Um, I there may be some concept stuff, but it's yeah, yeah but it you know kind of just prototype concept vehicles. So, you know, primarily I know the things are going that direction, and it's a big part of you know I think Honda's future. Um, but as of right now, it's a lot of kind of our history. So you see a lot of basically internal combustion and stuff. Nice. Well, you're ready to head in. I don't know. Ooh, let's let's go in. Let's see what's in here. Lead the way. I'm oh, so excited. Oh my god. Okay, wow, if you couldn't tell by the echo, we are in a giant room. This is um, this is a hell of a museum. This is a giant room, and I mean, we could just spend an hour right here at the first thing, even though it's four wheels. I like to refer to these as four-wheel motorcycles. Well, the S600, I mean, what an absolutely classic machine, and it's motorcycle technology in a car. Yeah. Yeah, this is... A lot of things that, you know, some of the first automotive production came from the profits of things like the CB750. Right. Without that motorcycle, there would almost be no Honda automobiles. Right. So in here, all right, so we've got... We've got automobiles, uh, ones you saw, you know, on the street when you were young. Um, It looks like every, like, Civic is here, right? Um... But we also have concept cars, we've got race cars, we've got indie cars, we've got motorcycles. We, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's get a tour. Now, I, I know this isn't motorcycle, but this is, uh, I mean, this is part of the history. Um, these cars right here are the first Hondas I remember seeing. Yeah. When I was a kid. And definitely for us, it was a big part of, uh, of how we came to the U.S. because we brought something that was, you know, uh, fuel economy, reliability. Um, there's a, you know, famous story about how we designed our, you know, intake chambers to, to kind of boost that fuel economy, be able to provide that. Because you have the, the fuel shortage of the you right. know, 70s and all that thing, big problems. And, and that kind of helped strengthen our position and bringing in something small, economical, you know, reliable, that was a big part of our history. Yeah, and we're looking at the 1971 Z600 Coupe. It's the, a 
It's actually a Z600 coupe. Okay. Yeah. Not, not in America. A Z600 and coupe. You know what I remember about these? And I see this. The back window reminded me of a scuba mask. Have you ever noticed that, Colin? I never even thought about that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah that is true. Yeah, Especially and with that, the trim around it, definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. that is directly related to the crack you've been smoking. Oh, right stop. Now. No, actually, it, it kind of has got that. It's, it's very much of the time. The design is so iconic of the early 70s. And the color as well. It's the most vibrant orange color. This could only be a product of the 70s. And really, it does tie in, because we talk about, you know, what's the most common motorcycle on the planet, Miss Emma? common motorcycle on the planet is the Honda Cub. Not just by a small amount, by a massive amount. And, and who was that bike made for? Well, if we go back to the original vision of Soshiro Honda, it was for everyone. It was for everyone. It is such a clever machine. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but the wheels were big because it's designed to be used in countries where the roads aren't always so great. So it's got a bigger wheel. It hasn't got a scooter wheel. It's got a step-through frame because in some cultures, riders wouldn't be wearing pants. They'd be wearing skirts. So you need a step-through frame. But it's still masculine-styled enough that it doesn't shy away men riders. A lot of riders are intimidated by a clutch. So it hasn't got a clutch, but it has got a manual gear shift. It's an extraordinarily clever design. And the thing that's interesting is these cars, uh, the early 70s, if you think back to what cars were on the road in the 70s, they were big. They were big cars. And, and Honda came out with these small, affordable, efficient cars made for... Everybody. Exactly. And when I see something like this... And the, the S600 at the beginning, and even the humble Honda Civic, mm-hmm. where so many people got their studies. The thing that tickles me about all these vehicles is how beautifully made they are. If you see... Now, you and I both know, I love big Detroit American cars from the 60s and 70s, but you don't realize how haphazardly they were assembled until you see a Honda from the same period. And it's just so beautifully made. And the paint finish is so good. And the trim is just, just so. And a trick I learned from Top Gear is check the gap on the door. Yes. Look for a consistent gap. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, too, they also like things like these are the kick and goes. Like we produced these, you know, and they were favorites with kids. You could literally, you know, you'd kick the little thing and it yeah. had a chain drive. I mean, all these kinds of things that we have. It predates the Razor scooter. Yeah, exactly. How cool. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's great to see all these cars just from my childhood. But they really were significant in that they did create the market for the small, affordable cars. Yeah, exactly. um, Really, all the Japanese cars following. And not all of them are, 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 are pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I'll admit. Yeah. Some of these Accords, they got a little boxy for a while. Um, oh, but, Emma, if we keep going down, I'm seeing some uh, two-wheeled items here. Here come the two-wheeled. 
Venezuela's. I know. You know, one of my favorite items, we did um, a walkthrough of the Peterson Auto, oh, Auto Museum. Okay. Yeah. And they have a cub mm-hmm. that has all the accessories you could buy for oh, it. Oh, really? Like the Torian windshield yeah. and all the stuff. And the little fins oh, the it had the little um, registration capsule on oh, the back. Okay. Uh-huh. And it was so brilliant to see all the accessories. So what do we got here? This is an old Honda 50, so basically what was the Super Cub, it wasn't actually ever called the Super Cub here in the U.S. It was always called the Honda 50. So this is one of the earlier ones. But what an extraordinary little bike. And when we look at it, this is from 1962. It's got an electric start. How extraordinary is that? Is it feminine styling? Is it masculine styling? It's neither. I mean, it appeals to everyone. It's got turn signals. It's got... The, the level of equipment on this tiny motorcycle is so light years ahead of anything else that was offered at the time. It's a no-brainer as to why they became such a good seller. It's a world bike, and clearly a world bike. Yeah, I rode a Cub 70 in high school, and it was freedom for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was freedom. I went so many places on that thing. Exactly. It just kind of lets you, you know, go where you want to go, and you have that kind of that, like you said, the freedom to do that. You know, and Honda have always been very, very clever with their marketing. Um, we go back to them. You meet the nicest people on, on mm-hmm. a Honda. Uh, yep. You know, motorcycling has always had a bit of an image problem. I always joked on the podcast that Triumph mm-hmm. spent their whole life wanting to sell their bikes to young executives. Mm -hmm. The truth is, if you go into any biker bar in England, the kind of people who rode Triumphs were tattoos, long hair, beards, and that's exactly who bought their bikes. Yeah. Honda wanted to get away from that thug hooligan image. So it's just, you meet the nicest people on Honda. It's, It's such an iconic phrase. And in order to do that, a lot of times what we did was instead of um, you know, you're like you said, the traditional motorcycle shop was kind of a dirty, grungy place, right, things exactly. like that. Full of ne'er do wells. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we actually had a program when these bikes were around that um, you would basically take it to like hardware stores and they would drop two of them off at a hardware store or, a, you know, a local shop that, you mm-hmm. know, did like lumber or something. And they would, you know, people would walk by there because people would go in there for their normal, you know, everyday things and they would see it and it was unintimidating. And it was like, oh, wow, well, this isn't this isn't what I thought motorcycling is, you know. It provided that kind of gap between that kind of grungy appearance that a lot of it had and to something that was much more friendly. Right. Fantastic. Very, yeah. very smart. Yes. Notice what you're standing in front of, too. Oh, oh wait. Yeah. It's the original facade. So it's a recreation of the original uh, Pico Boulevard address. So kind of recreated that is is that's Honda's you know, foundation in the U.S. Right. Humble beginnings. Exactly. We actually, uh, when we did the launch for the new Super Cub, they, if you go to this, this address still exists, and it's actually an acupuncture place now. Wow. Okay. And we go talk to them, and it's a nonprofit acupuncture. Um, so we had kind of said, hey, we'd like to kind of bring some people here because, you know, this was Honda's first building, and the lady who owns it is like, oh, yeah, I know. We get a couple motorcyclists a year that, <laughs> that come here. And we're like, oh, that's great. So we um, we worked with them to actually recreate the facade there and started the ride from that spot. Yeah, that is really cool to see the sign and everything. Um, 
completely recreated it. And we got a bike here in the museum that looks like something I might find out <laughs> in, in the street anywhere. Yeah, yeah. One of the old trails. So it's kind of a you know, Trail 90. A lot of the a lot of the historic stuff we try to keep around and um, you know as much as we can and keep it nice because we like to celebrate our heritage. And the Trail 90 and Trail 110 were extremely popular um, in their day. You know. Oh, well loved by hunters. Oh yeah, because they're quiet, mm-hmm. and exactly. you can sneak around on them, yeah. and they just. Yeah, and a lot of them had like a two-speed gearbox, so you could actually right. go from a high to low, and so you could actually you know go around you know lower speeds, and then also get up into some higher speeds if you want. Yeah, and these have become very collectible. They were just very utilitarian. Exactly. But very collectible. Might we see these making a comeback? Oh, it's definitely a cool design, so I can't never say never, you know. (laughs) What we've got to consider once again is how advanced this was compared with everything else that was around at the time. This bike's from 1969, Mm -hmm. and when I think about what us Brits were offering in 1969 you basically had like a BSA Bantam or a BSA Bushman the Tiger Cubs were finished Um, this is an amazing machine in comparison to them we simply couldn't compete yeah Uh, just anything with knobby tires makes me just want to like throw a leg over and just go ride I I think it's just the the knobby tires so um, are are these bikes um, that are being collected and restored or are these all original? Most of them are original. We have done some restorations on a few of them. Like this one has had some restoration work done to it, um, just because we actually um, we actually rode this bike um, at the press event, and we've had some times where we we took two bikes, like the old and the new, and let people ride them back to back. So we did do some restoration work on that one. But a lot of times we try to leave it as is. I mean, unless it's something glaring and we really want to fix it, we try to. Uh, you know, acquire it with either low mileage or it stays in the kind of the Honda warehouse from original. Now, uh, going back to the cars for a second, this is something that's fascinated me. The Obviously, through the decades, the style changes, mm-hmm. but from we have here an 83 Prelude and a 93 Prelude. The difference in um, the manufacturing and the styling completely changed because they had more options available. Now, this is all metal or is this getting into plastic yet no you're still into metal still metal um, yep so it wouldn't be until probably starting to get into the late 90s some of like things like the, the bumper will right. be plastic but a lot of the quarter panels hoods things like that were all still metal yeah so. basically manufacturing capabilities was exchanging and so the styling has changed but I realize you look around at all the cars today and you can tell they're all like molded cars mm-hmm. and you don't have as many of these steel cars that are just more square more simple more yeah. boxy yeah and a lot of things you'll see that um kind of the design on where seams are and things like that we're able to get much more stylish like um you know where the bumper meets the you know the wheel well mm-hmm. or the front you, you didn't have to have a, a piece of trim to kind of uh, transition it now it could transition from piece to piece and every, the way everything fit together became much more uh, kind of stylish and, and that manufacturing techniques were much more advanced now did that also happen with motorcycles yeah i think you did you did see things from um like you know 70s and like kind of early 80s bikes that transitioned from a lot of the things that were they used a lot of common parts mm-hmm. into more rounded stylish designs that you know maybe the parts weren't as 
they didn't have as much commonality as they did years before. Right, and for for the metal, a lot of this is pressed, right? It's pressed yep. in a shape. Yep. You can only push metal so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you started getting into molded stuff, and so your gas tanks and your body panels and everything completely changed. And so, yeah, I think you're right. And I think you could look at the Goldwing oh, yeah. as a perfect example it's a, it's a of example. that change in the manufacturing um, abilities. Right, we're going we're gonna to see a very, very early Goldwing in a, in a few minutes. Oh, when we, and a death trap up there, I see. Yes. <laughs> and when we, but once again, going back to these cards, the 83 and the 93 Prelude, the 83 is a very dated looking car. Mm-hmm. This was a handsome car in 93. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say it's a handsome it's car now. Today. It's still a great looking car. Exactly. So you know, styling has come a long, long way. Yeah, big leaps in regards to how everything kind of came together and the appearance that everything got as an overall. I'll be honest, I don't know why. It doesn't make sense to me. But I've always had an affinity for anything made in 1979. And that 1979 Prelude, to me, is the better looking of them. I just I just keep finding myself with 1979 motorcycles and cars. I mean, look at my, um, my triple, my Yamaha triple, 79. I've had many vehicles. I... I, I, I like the design, but okay, there are some people who will go a little apeshit about what's in front of us here, and some might not care, but oh, so what What do we have in front of us? So basically, we've had a long uh, history of involvement in IndyCar, and so a lot of these are pulled from uh, teams that we've sponsored over the years, and you know, a lot of the engines, so a lot of that development is done up in Santa Clarita at uh, HPD, Honda's like performance center. And, um, and so a lot of those cars kind of either from winning a championship or just kind of one that was a little bit historic um, have been brought here to kind of put into the museum. And, and the thing we have to remind people, you know, you get race car technology then does trickle down into street cars. And same with motorcycles. A lot of the technology on the GP bikes will trickle down into street bikes. Why is that important to us? It's not just performance, it's efficiency, it's, it's uh, I mean, there's so many things that go into that. You know, recently we did that article on the CB750. There's a direct line between mm-hmm. the CB750's launch in 1969 and their Grand Prix efforts in the ni- early 1960s. Without those Grand Prix bikes, there could have been no CB750. So is it relevant? Of course it is. Yeah, huge differences. And, I mean, you look at um, the performance engines today. I mean, you know, Formula One has uh, really pushed things quite a bit, too, things like right. that. You know, you've got um, the valve train designs um, have really advanced and then come into now performance street bikes, too. So. Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay to take pictures of the cars? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, um, I mean, there's, but they're just beautiful designs. So... Here's just a trick question, Colin. Do we ever see anything from the car um, R&D, car design, and go into motorcycles? Um, is there any crossover? Yes, there is. You've got um, so things like the um, like our NC 700, 750 mm-hmm. now is very much that engine is very much based on a car design engine so things like the uh, honda fit those engines are actually very similar in their design 
So um, definitely, because that vehicle is very efficient. It's not, it doesn't produce a lot of power, but its efficiency is really high. So you get a lot of things like um, where the head, instead of having um, separate ports like out of the exhaust, mm-hmm. they'll merge into one port and then utilize that, the head as the exhaust chamber. And that's come a lot from like the car industry as well. So you do get a fair amount of crossover. That's pretty interesting. Emma, do you think there's ever been any parts shared between cars and motorcycles? Yes. Yeah, what can you think of? Oil plug. Mm, I don't know. What can you think Airbag. Airbags. The car are airbags on Honda Goldwings. Yeah. Oh, That's a yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point. That's, we always forget about the, the Goldwing yeah. and the airbags. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, generally, motorcycles and cars are two very, very separate animals because they do very separate jobs. There's a commonality that binds them, particularly in a company like Honda, which is the culture of quality. Um, it's build quality. And this is reflecting, we're looking at a 1990 Honda Accord looks like a brand new car, and yet it's done a million miles. <laughs> what? A million miles? Who can drive that far? Wow. So, million mile Joe. So, and we're going to list what it's had 185 oil changes, 72 tires, 31 transmission fluid changes, 13 sets of front brake pads, 9 timing belts. However, it's got the original engine, the original transmission, the original AC system, power steering system, fuel injection, brake calipers, and more. No accidents. It was only towed once when the original fuel pump died at 741,000 miles. And it was 15 years of testing in a grueling northeast environment. All right, so I have a question for both of you. I'd like to get both of your answers here. For a vehicle to reach extremely high mileage like this, and we know people have gotten motorcycles, hundreds of thousands. Long Haul Paul, our friend, has done that. Um, Do you attribute that more to engineering or to maintenance? Um, I think it's a a factor of both. You have to include both, yeah. Because, I mean, if the the original design hasn't been tested and then gone through, you know, the the criteria to meet, you know, what it's capable of distance-wise, then... The maintenance can mean nothing, um, but then also, you know, things happen. It's a, it's outside world, and there's a lot of outside influences. So I think that the maintenance is a key factor. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, you it, it, you need a good solid design. This applies to motorcycles, cars. It doesn't matter what you're applying it to. You need a good solid design to start with, but you need to follow a rigorous maintenance schedule. And if you deviate from that that's where things come unstuck when a vehicle gets to a certain age it stops being a product of its manufacturer and becomes a product of the person who's been taking care of it or not as the case may be yeah nice i love looking at the sponsors on some of these cars and just like with motorcycles you had the cigarette companies were a big factor and then that just went away yeah they were pretty much banned from being able to display that on the vehicles yeah you go look at wayne rainey bike and it had marlboro on it um then you start seeing these different brands coming in we got rayovac and target and speed stick and haynes ibc root beer who knew yeah (laughs) but we are drawing nearer to the bikes oh this is a okay the SL70, which uh, not a lot of people knew. So at one time, you know how you end up with like two or something, now you have a collection? Yeah. 
Well, I had a Trail 70, and then I got an SL70, and then it's like a slippery slip from there. Then you start looking at, like, ATCs, and, like, I'll get all the 70s. I'll get a Cub. I'll get all of them. Um, But these SL70s are really cool because it's a almost like a half-size street bike. Yeah, yeah. It was allowed, you know, people to kind of take to a trail, but also, you know, if you needed to get on a street where you needed registration, that was the capability this would provide. And I like them. I think they're a great-looking little thing. For people who are smaller in stature, if you want just a little commuter bike, just something for whizzing around town and taking down a dusty trail at the weekend, they were great, and they looked... It looks fun. It was a great piece of design work. All right, so let's have a little fun here. So I just rattled off a a couple. Let's see how many many vehicles did that 70 engine go into. So we know the ATC Mm three-wheeler, the SL, the CT... The Cub. Yeah. What else uh, used that 70? The, the Passport. That's the same thing as the Cub, isn't it? Yeah, right. Similar yeah. to a yeah, later version of it. Um, God, I mean, you had XR70s, too, yeah. later on. Yeah, XR. The, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, I mean, similar versions of that same engine are also a 50cc engine, which was in countless XR, CRF50s, and... You know, mini trails, things like that. But you know, we see that even now, don't we, Colin? With it, with the modular engines like the CB500X that we were talking about. Um, well, the, the CB500 uh, engine we can find in the Rebel, we can find it in the R, and we can find it in the X. It's the same so engine, just different platforms. That was leading me up to. So we just rattled off like six bikes that use the 70. Have there been any other bikes or, or engines used as frequently as that? Probably. In the history of Honda since that? Probably. This overall design, probably not. Yeah, I would say this is pretty much the most common design. Because um, I'm always fascinated by the use of the same engine. For instance, the XR500 engine could be found on the GB500, right? But let's go back to this engine. Yeah. Because this is just one incarnation of this engine. You can still buy this engine today, not only just as a Honda, because you know I think the 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 um, the rights to the design of this mm-hmm. engine ran out a few years ago. Now the life fans come in, right? And so you can buy this right up to like two hundred cc or something crazy, mm-hmm. but it's basically distills back to the same sound design. The great engines. That's what I did. I took out the original engine and put in a Life N125. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> that's what you see a lot with uh, things like the Ruckus and the Grom. I mean, everybody you know takes that original and they're upgrading it, turning it into something. So else. the 125 engine, mm-hmm. how many bikes is that on? Um, that, right now, it's in three platforms on ours. So you have Cub, Grom, and Monkey. Mm-hmm. And then, but I know in you know Asia, there's like another 10 different variants of that engine. That is, that, I find that kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, BMW is really the best at that. They have done that a long time, yeah, because their engine was the... <laughs> Let's just take one engine and put it in everything, yeah, build the bikes exactly. around it. Okay, so this bike here is a um, controversial well, bike. Well, no, it's not what you think you're looking at. Because I immediately, I glanced out of the corner of my eye and thought, okay, it's a rune. Oh, that's what I thought. It's not a rune. I'm guessing this was the prototype for the rune. 100%. There's a lot of features on this bike that are one-off features. I've never seen that front end before. I've never seen that handlebar treatment before. 
I've never seen the valve covers before. So this is a prototype bike that became... All right, I got to get a picture of this. Here, you keep talking. So, um, Colin, talk us through it. So basically, yeah, that's they they built this as kind of a concept bike, and then um, kind of using you know the GL platform, and then what happened is it was became so popular that they produced the Rune for several years after that. So it came out, and the Rune was produced in uh, you know Marysville, Ohio, along with the Goldwing, so same factory, but um, you know much more intricate that that kind of leading link front end and the rear wheel. I mean, it, it was much more of this kind of. Uh, you know, power cruiser look to it. Right, exactly. I mean, this has got a very prototypical look. There's a lot of polished aluminum on it, yeah. which is great on a prototype, but on sure. a production bike, you want something a little more durable, perhaps. Exactly. So we've got a lot more chrome on the production bike. What a great-looking machine, though. The, uh, the handlebars look like that stealth aircraft. It has yeah. got that stealth It's a giant... Uh, fl- it's a... Oh, my gosh. I just saw how the how the controls are oh, okay i got to get a picture of that so it looks like a the handlebars look like a boomerang and the um the gauges are built into it and i just noticed that this is actually designed right here at the facility in torrance uh-huh. so you yeah. have a design shop here yeah so there is some r&d done here um in the, the la facility we also have a massive r&d facility in ohio as well as, you know, Japan. So a lot of R&D across kind of all the platforms. Right, and I I know that um, California design is still very much considered a hallmark. I mean, it's it's, Mm -hmm. it's a very good thing to have a California-designed motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, a lot of input into uh, kind of how we bring bikes to market is, you know, kind of starting with something like this, a prototype or kind of a concept and then evolving it from there. Yeah, and and the engine is—it's hard not to notice the engine. And you see, this is the GL eighteen hundred. Yeah, yeah. So flat six engine. Um, you know, originally the GL was a, a fifteen hundred, the six, and then turned into the eighteen hundred in two thousand one. So really, kind of uh, was a lot more advanced in regards to fuel injection versus carbureted. So it took that bike to the next level. You know, and I'm noticing a lot of hot rod elements on it. Um, the rear wheel has got a very much a hot rod feel to it, and it's got this big spinner in the middle, which kind of reminds me of a Cobra. It's got that kind of flair to it. It's a great-looking bike, and, of course, I love the tribal paint scheme. It's in a very vibrant blue. It's got a lot of the features of the bikes of that time, integrated taillight into the low fender. It also has uh, just up here when you look at the um, the controls. This is that was like a very chopper thing of the two thousands. Everything's just very sleek, integrated. Exactly. All over these handlebar controls. Mikey three times. Mikey three times. Mikey three times would be creaming his trousers right now over this. But now. This front end is unique. Did the rune go with this front end? No, I don't remember this. Different. It's like a leading. There's yeah. elements. I mean, talk oh, us through the difference between this and the rune collar. I would have to actually put them next to each other, yeah. but I know it was a similar. They use kind of that that intricate intricacy. Slightly yeah, green, exactly. But there's a lot there was more a lot of going little on. Little bits were different. Yeah. yeah. So, but we took a lot of that kind of idea of not your standard telescopic fork to make the rune unique. And you know, the thing is, when you ride a rune, the most bizarre things, if you look forward and look at what the forks are doing, Mm -hmm. 
it's the strangest thing because you'll go over a bump and things you think that should be moving up are dropping away yeah, from you. Exactly. And it's a wonderful ride, but it's really quite disconcerting because if you're used to things moving in a certain way, a room does not move in a certain way. The overall package is wonderful. It makes great power, it's very, very smooth, and the attention it gets, it's, it's like the movie star of bikes. But you kind of you're going over a bumpy road and you're looking down at the forks and you're like that's not right you know it's just everything's kind of moving backwards it's an extremely clever design but this this is the jewel for me seeing anything prototypical yeah. in motorcycling i love it well actually i'm going to take that one step because we're right next to the t2 concept motorcycle we're talking about we've got what looks to me like two futuristic cars and i'm really surprised to see that one of these is 2009 concept car and the other one is a 1997 concept car this looks uh this one in front of us um this fc sport it looks like the car from irobot it does look very similar yeah right i was thinking yeah. Tron. right um this is very advanced same with this 1997 before you move on to the 97 i want you to have a look at the front yeah. of this car and this flying v and this is a Honda trademark, and you see this on the Civics, the production Civics, and you see it on the new Gold Wings. It's, I don't know whether you'd call it a V or a T. but it's what the, specifically the design is called. But. Yeah, but it's, it's very much a Honda trademark, and they've, they've been messing around with this basic shape for a long, long time. If you go back to the first GL1500s, um, again, it's got this... this Big V with a drop center. It's a very, very good design. But these just all remind me that there are engineers at every manufacturer who are really pushing the boundaries and thinking so far in but the that's future. that's what engineers do. Right, but they're thinking so far in the future that I'm looking at something 10, 20 years old and it looks futuristic to me. What actually makes it to the street is quite cut down. I'm yeah, sure yeah. some accountant has a lot to do with that. You have that, and then also, you know, like uh, applicable laws in certain areas, yeah, everything like, like that. that. So a lot of those things come into effect, but, you know, a lot of the the vehicle start as a prototype, or just, we're going to make this just because, and then you take aspects of it and bring it into production. So. And I'm guessing this one is not a real drivable yeah, vehicle? not, yeah. Since the windows are blacked out. Yeah, exactly. Um, but this one over here, this uh, GRX concept is really cool. So, yeah, we got a bunch of concept cars. Um, let's go upstairs, though, because there's a bunch of two-wheeled things in there. So, um, all right, Emma. We're all alone. He's gone. This is our chance to go sit on bikes. <laughs> all right we're going upstairs to the loft all right right away the first thing it's probably the one responsible for the most broken arms <laughs> atc 90 <laughs> yeah the atc uh, look at the tires on that thing those are original tires, those big balloon tires. Big balloon tires on that inside right. with the wheels. All right, let's, oh, okay, let's just go down the line real quick because we're going to hit all these. We've got the ATC. Oh, we got a little four-wheel dune, bug, dune buggy. Then we've got the CR500 death machine. Yes, beautiful. for cracking ankles. Original Honda Goldwing, 1975. Pre-veterized. 
pre-vetterized and Honda CBX. This is the CBX B. This is the touring model. It's got the saddlebags. It's got the fairing. It's got the Prolink rear end. Among CBXs, it's not considered the most desirable, but a very capable machine. One for you next to it. One of my favorite. One of my favorites, design wise. CX650 Turbo. Uh, I just think that these are beautiful bikes. They're great-looking bikes, and they make good power. Man, when that turbo kicks in and spools up, you are rocking and rolling. Um, so behind us, what have we got? Ah, that engine looks a lot like the GB500 engine. Um, this is going to be an XR, I believe this is going to be an XR500 race bike. This has been ridden, ridden hard too, um, by somebody named Chuck or Dan. So I'm going to guess that this was a team bike for Baja possibly, something like that. Uh, really cool looking bike. And then, ooh, the V45 Interceptor. Very interesting. And yeah, actually, Colin, Emma and I were just talking about this bike last night. Oh, the Interceptor? We were. We were talking about bikes from the 80s and 90s that have not had that much attention that maybe should be on people's radar as future collectible bikes. This is definitely one. I mean, that the V4, you know, that V45 is so iconic in our history that, it, you know, it. we've had so many variations of this V4 engine, and this one is... I think definitely one that you'll find as a collector's item in the future, if not kind of starting already to become that way a little bit. And it's still very rideable today, oh, yeah. Yeah. but also collectible. All right, we're just going down the line, and then over here, ooh. This is the uh, Dream 50. We kind of made it as a kind of a retro revival bike, so it was kind of a replica of an older bike. It was produced in the you mm-hmm. know early to mid-2000s, but um, kind of still had that... Uh, that similar design is what you saw me with like an Isle of Man TT race bike, you know, small displacement. So very nice. And now we're getting into the moderns because this one is not so old right here. No. CB 1100. So produced this for a number of years. Um, was it actually a first new oil cooled design that we had uh, from the ground up? And I, I don't even know how many years. It was like 20 years or something. But the first time we had redesigned a complete oil-cooled engine. It's it's a modern classic. And then right here, what do we have here? Yeah, so this is a Miguel Duhamel race bike. Ah, so really? like a, probably like an 0102 CBR 600F4i. So kind of that first level of fuel-injected 600 race bikes. So, all right. So... These are just, it looks like, just a bunch of hand-picked bikes here just to display that represent a lot of different things through the years. I want to go into a little more detail on some of them, but the first thing I want to do, Emma, hypothetical game. He'll hand you the keys to any one of them, let you ride it around. Of these bikes? Of these. Which of these bikes do you take out on the road? You know what I take, really? Just for just the sheer batshit craziness of it? CBX. Haven't you ridden those? Yeah, I have, but doesn't mean they're not lovely to ride. I maintain out of everything here, mm-hmm. if I was riding a long way mm-hmm. at high speed, that bike still takes some beating. Yeah. It's a big bike. It's got a big fairing. They, they were fast then. They're fast now. Um, handling is not the best, but it wasn't on anything back then. I'd ride that thing in a heartbeat. 
I know you take the turbo. I, I'm taking the turbo. I've had a thing about the turbos, but I've never wanted to ride one because I will be greatly disappointed. No, you won't. But I also just want to experience that because the reason that a lot of people don't like them is that turbo, when that kicks in, it's a punch. I want to experience it, but when it comes to performance and handling, you want something that's a little a little more controllable. Exactly. Sure. So, Colin, which bike do you choose? Mm, I would probably... I would probably take the Interceptor, the V4. Ooh. Yeah, I like the V4 engine, and it's just so smooth, but the power delivery is unlike anything else, so yeah, that yeah. would be the one I would I think you, you're a smart guy. That's a good choice. Yeah. That's a good choice. And I'm reminded seeing it of what a great-looking bike the Interceptor was when it came out. It's like nothing else on the road. So who curates this selection? Um, there's actually a couple people who kind of help maintain the uh, museum itself and kind of, uh, you know, move around. Sometimes we'll do, like, events here and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so it's – we – for us, the motorcycle-wise, we do get some selection. Sometimes we'll rotate bikes in and out of here um, to other bikes, depending on what we've got going on. So, like when we did the the Super Cub launch, we actually staged a whole bunch of you know important models down by the facade of the original building. So, but I have to ask, if this is being curated, that means you have someplace you're pulling these from yes yep yep we do have a supply of of bikes that are not kept in this room here that we kind of rotate out from as well yeah where where's that room i don't know it's around here somewhere but yeah yeah he knows he's just not telling and that's okay (laughs) because you know what just because we've got the golden key to the crapper it doesn't mean we can go everywhere (laughs) so this um race bike here Yes. Whose was this? I so see this the name. Baja uh, uh, race bike. Yeah. So basically, um, you actually see one of the the names on here. Chuck. Yeah. Is actually Chuck Miller, who um, actually works at Honda still to this day. Oh really? Yeah. So and and so he won the Baja several times, and so I mean this was the kind of the bike of that era that he won on. Well, what era are we looking at right here? So it's like early '90s, basically. Okay. Yeah. So these works basically works 600. Um, and 500, you know, oil-cooled XRs. Right, and this is a brutal environment for race bikes. It's hot, it's dusty, oh, yeah. it's punishing. Mm-hmm. It's everything you don't want when you're racing motorcycles. Yeah, and I mean, you're out there in the desert, you know, wide open spaces. I mean, it, it's kind of one of the, uh, the more grueling environments to go through. Nice. And uh, so all these bikes, are these all bikes that have been owned by honda the whole time or bikes that had come back in it's a mix of both yeah sometimes we've acquired some and uh, sometimes it's been just we've had it um since it was new so here's a good question what's the most valuable bike up here right now because it used to be clear but can i take a stab at that colin sure because I, i truthfully i think any bike with a race pedigree yeah. is going to be the most valuable. Yeah. So if you can point oh, to yeah. the bike that won the Baja, that's, you know, that's really what makes the value. Yeah, that's very true. And either that or Miguel Duhamel's race bike. Yeah. There you, you go. Got, yeah, one of those two would probably, just because of the, the lineage and the history that it has. So, right, exactly. Yeah. Right, and uh, of course, though, these, these CBXs are bikes that have been highly collectible for a long time. Um, and... In, in many ways, were these were these 
they're considered a failure by the public. Were they considered a failure by Honda? Because they kind of put a lot of eggs in this basket. You know, I'm not sure if we considered it a failure, but I mean, it came out. It, it probably didn't sell as maybe as we as much as we wanted it to, yeah. um, and especially for the cost of you know producing an engine that's six cylinders, you got right. additional costs included. Um, but they were they did sell a fair amount and a couple variants. So this is like kind of the full fairing and bagged variant. Mm-hmm. There was also one with just a headlight, no bags, um, and. And I think now they're they're coming back, much like we talked about with the V, the Interceptor. Mm-hmm. They're kind of that collector is coming back around to this bike, definitely. And you know, let's be honest with you, it's got six cylinders. Yeah. yeah. If you want to own a six-cylinder motorcycle, that's a pretty exclusive club. Yeah, yeah, it is. And Boss Haas. That's got eight cylinders ah. there. Goldwing. Ah, there we go. But um, and I, one of the campaigns, I, there's a. Uh, campaign from when this first came out that they would they would expose the cylinder as it went along and then it kept going past four you know so people were like wait what no no there more you know because we were always known for our inline fours that was like our kind of core market so of course do you remember that uh, seven cylinder bike we saw at vintage days oh gosh yeah that was um there's an engineer out of england (laughs) yeah and he's that Alan he Milliard? Builds, yeah, Alan yeah. Milliard. And what he does is he takes old Kawasaki two-stroke triples, uh-huh. and it just keeps adding cylinders to <laughs> them. Oh, my gosh. So it, there's you know, like I've a, seen that. I yeah, think there's a seven-cylinder. Like bank, like, yeah, and he does like a V6, yeah, and he yeah, does yeah. straight across the frame sevens. Um, but turn around and look at this Goldwing. You know, and I'm reminded once again of what a handsome bike the original Goldwing was. And it's nice to see the current Goldwing kind of going back a little bit, you know, the basic Goldwing as you described it, going back a little bit to its roots. It's a little bit sportier, it's a little bit more cut down. Mm -hmm. This is a great looking bike, very much of the time, but a handsome bike. You know, what I find interesting, so we got down at the other end, the CB1000, or CB1100, which would seem to come from the CB lineage. Uh, aside from the engine type, actually that CB1100 is much more reminiscent of this GL1000. Sure. Uh, that style, that naked bike. The uh, the interesting thing about the Goldwing is it very much kind of grew its own wings and became what the customers wanted. So you had this as a, you know, was a fully naked bike, kind of that, um, you know, GT bike kind of thing. And then everybody put better bearings on them and it just became something else and then that is what we kind of saw like mm-hmm. oh wow that's what people want they want that all that protection extra storage you and know one of our dearest friends at the podcast is craig vetter oh, okay. um and he's a regular on our show we nice. he lives very very close to yeah. us and craig himself credits the honda goldwing as part of his success mm-hmm. because he was it was a moment in time that he came up with this just staggeringly good fairing. Yeah. Right as Honda came out with a staggeringly good touring bike that needed a fairing yeah. for a certain job. Sure, yeah. And so it was a, it was a marriage made in Sold heaven. Sold a mountain of those things. Sold I mean, a yeah. mountain of gold wings yeah. and a mountain of Vesta Windjammers mm-hmm. yeah. and enabled him to do other projects yeah. that really put him on the map. Yeah. I want to give some credit to a bike that we don't really talk about or give credit to, but it's listed on the wall right behind me. The 1983 VT750 Honda Shadow. That's a first custom bike from Honda. 
Yeah, V-Twin from Honda. Um, we still, to this day, when people are looking for an entry-level uh, cruiser, yeah. go buy an old a Shadow. Yeah. They last yeah. forever. Yeah, and we still, to this day, make them, and they still sell well. Right. The engine has gone through some, you know, updates and iterations, mm -hmm. but, I mean, still to this day, a great bike, and, I mean... Yeah, such a lineage. I mean, has it gone back so oh, far and absolutely. so many variations? One of my personal favorite bikes, and the the rest of the Misfits always give me a mountain of crap over it, is the Pacific Coast. Oh. And I loved my PC800. Great and it's white whale. It's, it's basically a large displacement VT750 yeah. engine mm -hmm. in a mountain of fiberglass. I loved mine. No, they were great bikes. I mean, yeah. They, and they were a little bit underrated. It was something... We have a, um, a tendency to kind of... You know, as much as we get pegged as a little bit of a conservative company sometimes, we have these times where we do something completely unique. And, and, that, was uh, and that was one of them, yeah. And, and it's uh, such a capable bike. Yeah. I, I vividly remember being on a run, um, professional rider, close course. Of course. But um, yeah. I was came alongside somebody who was pretty much flat out at 110, and I just sailed past him sitting bolt upright. <laughs> it's an amazing bike. It made great power. It handled well. And... I could put chilled beer in the trunk. There you go. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. Life and soul of the party. So um, I know you're running short on time, so I just wanted to like check in and uh, and also thank you for giving us the tour of this place. It, Honda is such a part of all of our history. It really is. So just to see all the ways besides motorcycles, cars, everything, but right here on the wall we have this really cool lineage, and I was wondering if you can just uh, remind us some of the highlights of Honda's history. Yeah, um, I mean it starts with kind of you know in 1959, and kind of this year is actually our 60th anniversary in the United States. And so you, you see that, you know, we saw the facade where they've started, but, and I mean, it's a, a Japanese company, but there's so much of the U.S. in it as well. I mean, we produce, uh, you know, so many cars, ATVs, motorcycles have been produced here. And so it's really, it's a, it's a worldwide company and a huge part of that is the U.S. And we're proud of that. So, I mean, you could see everything from, you know, we talked about the nicest people campaign mm -hmm. down in 63 to, um, you know, kind of the first cars that started coming in in late 70s or late 60s, early 70s um, to things like the, the Goldwing that was produced in Marysville for so long. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that just keeps going on and on into where you can come all the way to today and so much is still built here and and. and the U.S. has such a big part in that as well, so that's And important. I'm glad you brought that up, Colin, because, I mean, to, to so many people, Honda is a quintessentially Japanese company, mm -hmm. but it's also, to a certain extent, a quintessentially American one as well. Sure. So I'm really glad that you, you made a point of that. If you buy a Honda product, there's a very, very good chance that it may be made in Japan, may be made in Thailand, but it may be made in America as well. Mm -hmm. um, Honda have plants all over the world. Yeah, the one uh, the one thing. So when uh, Sochiro first was deciding where to expand outside of Japan, he um, he had taken trips to the U.S. and said that we're going to go to the United States. But a lot of his um, you know like top executives and things like that were like, well, we we think that we can succeed you know much quicker in Asia and southern different parts of Asia but he made it a point to say you know if we can succeed in America then we can succeed anywhere 
and that was a big part of kind of how that growth all started. It was, you know, first outside subsidiary outside Japan was here. And, and looking at this timeline, I'm reminded, too, from uh, 59, the Honda Cub, to 69, the CB750. What a huge leap that is it's, in 10 it's years. It's a different planet. But I'm going to go back to something that Colin said, because remember, I am ancient, as you quite... I was lucky enough once to hear Sachiro speak. Oh, very nice. And to me, Honda has, and I don't know how they've done it, they've really remained true to him. His vision of basically making, whether it's a motorcycle, whether it's a car, something accessible to everyone. And that was his market from day one. I want to... I want to make a product for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as apparent in 2019 as it was when he first started in 1949. It's not as apparent looking at those indie cars. <laughs> just kidding. No, well, that's really cool. No, it shows, again, just looking at the history here, there are the cars, the motorcycles for everyone, and then they're also leading in, in engineering and racing and tech. And that is quite an expanse to cover. So in conclusion, buy Honda. <laughs> Can't go wrong. So I wanted to thank you again. And, yes, thank you. But this does not end our time with Honda. It certainly does not. Um, we've got some secret stuff coming up tomorrow. But I wanted to take this opportunity, Colin, thank you. Of course. It's, yeah. it's been a wonderful tour. I mean, I am... I'm surprised I actually managed to speak. I'm just in complete sensory overload with the quality of the stuff you have in here. But just the size of the place. This is a very, very serious operation. But Colin, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure for us. It really has. And that's, you know, I'm glad you guys enjoyed the the trip. And for us, it's important, you know, um, kind of, for me, my aspect is motorcycling in general, getting people out there and riding. And I mean, that's that's a huge thing, whether it be someone who has a, a little 50 all the way up to a Goldwing. It's, right. you know, just it's, being able to just experience that. for being part of the motorcycling family. Exactly. And that's what we're all about. Yeah. It's like, we don't care who you are, where you came from, what you look like. Do you like bikes? You're one of us. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I think he's a complete misfit. <laughs> he's one of us. Yeah, we gotta get we got to get you up to Santa Cruz. Oh, okay. I'm down. Yeah, I'll okay. definitely come up there. If nothing else, you'll get a free Motorcycles and Misfits t-shirt. Okay. Lovingly modeled by Miss Emma. Okay. I don't, you're giving away my shirts? Yes. <laughs> oh, jeez. Worth every penny. You give him one of your stickers instead. Okay, I will. All right. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of our tour of Honda. Special thanks to all of our Patreon sponsors who help make trips like this possible. Also, big thanks to Honda and Colin for providing us with such an amazing experience. Thank you very much. So make sure you don't miss out on our other interviews from this trip to LA. We met with Danny from Iconic Motorbikes who has an amazing collection of collectible sport bikes. Also, June from the Honda Training Center, who gave us a personal one-on-one dirt biking lesson. And also, land speed record holder Stacy B. London gives us some stories from the salt. You can go to MotorcyclesAndMisfits.com to find all of our shows and links. So I think that is going to wrap it up now. This is Liza. 
and I am out of here. Cool, cool. <laughs>